All right, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. Hey, you're a little more lively than last hour. That's fantastic. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at our Carmel campus, and I think most of us would agree, right? Like a lot of life today is designed around living as convenient and as comfortable of a life as possible. But as I look around the room, I see a lot of people like me who remember a time when life was far less convenient. And of course, I'm talking about the 1990s, right? Like, yes, if you wanted to go on a road trip in the 90s, you had to use a physical map to figure out where you were going to go, just like Lewis and Clark did, or anybody on the Oregon Trail, okay? Like, it took us forever to find anything. Or before our phones were permanently attached to our hands, they were permanently attached to a wall, with a cord that would allow you to go anywhere from three feet away from it to 30 feet away from it, but it always ended up in that tangled knot right at the base of the phone, no matter how many times you unwound it. And here's one that blows my kids' minds, right? They can't wrap their head around the fact that when I was a kid, the planets had to align just right for me to catch my favorite show at the right time every single week, right? Like my kids take for granted the fact they can just turn their favorite show on whenever they want. If I missed my favorite show, I had to wait who knows how long until they ran something called a rerun, which isn't a thing anymore. Now, every once in a while, like growing up as a family, we would have a movie night, just like tonight, just like today, not tonight. Um, but we had to actually leave our house to rent a movie. We had to drive somewhere and then search through shelf after shelf of fake movies to hopefully find one copy of a VHS tape that was left that somebody forgot to rewind. Okay, if you don't get that, find somebody with naturally gray hair and they will explain it to you, okay? Now, there was one convenience that was really coming about in the 90s and that was Amazon. If you had internet at home, you could go to Amazon, which only sold books, right? Like, forget subscribe and save. Forget free two-day shipping. When you ordered something from Amazon in the early and mid-90s, you had no clue if it was ever going to show up at your house. You just sent your money somewhere and hoped for the best because all, for all you knew, it may have actually been coming from the Amazon, right? Like it was a wild time. I don't know how the human race has made it to where we are now, but somehow we survived. And we laugh because for those of us who remember those things, uh, life is way different now and it's much more convenient. But even the inconvenience of the 1990s pales in comparison to the inconvenience for followers of Jesus in the first century. And what we've seen in the book of Acts so far is that a small group of Jesus followers grew to a movement of several thousand. And when the established rulers noticed, well, that's when the persecution started. And as the persecution increased, the dispersal of Christians and the gospel message went to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And more and more people came to faith in Jesus and started living the way of Jesus. And what we've seen with Luke, the author of Acts, up to this point is that he has moved at a blinding pace with this story. In a single chapter, he would cover several years and hundreds of miles. But as he closes in on his account, he starts to slow down the pace. And he narrows his focus to individual interactions. And today, in Acts chapter 24, what we're going to see is one of Paul's courtroom dramas, if you will, 
after he was arrested in Jerusalem. And one of the things we're going to learn about today, one of the things that we're going to observe in God's word is, the in, is just how inconvenient it was for Paul to live with Jesus both as his savior and his Lord. But before we jump into our text today, it's vital that we stop to pray because there's a lot of stuff in chapter 24 that I think is gonna hit home for a lot of us today. So will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for today. We thank you for, for your word and for Luke's account of this particular case. And God, I pray that as we sit and we listen to your word, that your word will accomplish what you said it to do. And that your spirit, which is present in this place, who is present in this place, will shake us up, will bring to the surface the things that you want to make us aware of. Because we know that you are always calling us into a deeper relationship with you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Beginning in verse one, Luke writes, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order to not weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. And so about a week after Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, he's now standing trial before a Roman governor, Jewish leadership, and this hired attorney in Caesarea. And if you, at a, at a surface level reading, this all makes sense, right? Like if you get arrested, you face a judge and there are lawyers involved. It all kind of makes sense. But if you get, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Luke tells us that in this particular case, Tertullus is the prosecuting attorney, Paul doesn't have a defense attorney, and that Felix is the judge. Now, Tertullus' job as a first century lawyer was less about presenting evidence and was more about gaining favor from whoever it was that was judging this case. And he likely made a very good living doing just this. And he was likely very good at what he did, which is why these Jewish leaders hired him instead of someone else. But Luke makes it pretty clear here that his opening remarks were an attempt at flattery, trying to convince Felix to give them the verdict that Tertullus was going for. And so Tertullus highlights that under Felix's leadership, the Judean region has had years of peace and that Felix himself has made great contributions to social reform. And this sounds great. He sounds like an amazing ruler, but none of that is true. History actually records Felix as an extremely violent and oppressive and corrupt ruler who had zero qualifications to be governor. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that um, Felix was so violent and so oppressive of the Jews that this actually led to even greater unrest and everybody in the region that he oversaw knew it. And so because of Felix's lack of character, Tertullus tries to manipulate him through flattery. And then he introduces the three trumped up charges that they're bringing against Paul. 
One, he says, Paul, he accuses Paul of being a troublemaker and starting riots. Now, what you need to know is that the Roman Empire protected peace within the empire with extreme and violent measures. And so this charge was specifically designed to get Felix's attention and to hold it. The second charge was that he uh, identified Paul as a leader of this new religious movement that the Jews saw as heretical. And the third thing that he charged him with was attempting to desecrate the temple. And the reason that most scholars believe he put this one in there is because um, it was an attempt to convince Felix to give Paul back to the Jews because desecration of the temple was one of the very few charges that Rome would allow the Jews to execute someone for. And what we see Tertullus doing with this is exactly what lawyers do all the time. He specifically crafted the wording of his charges to exact an extreme response from Felix. And it's all because of Paul's belief in Jesus. But if we've been paying attention to the story of Acts, we shouldn't be surprised by this. And Jesus himself said to his followers in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. And the apostle John wrote in his personal letters, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. The point is this, like Paul, when we follow Jesus as both our Lord and our master, we should expect opposition because the way of the world and the way of Jesus are diametrically opposed. The way of the world tells us to strive until we're on top, to seek comfort and convenience, even if it comes at the cost of others. But the way of Jesus is the way of downward mobility. It causes us to put other people ahead of ourselves by caring for the oppressed, serving the neglected, and acting with humility. You see, learning to follow Jesus is learning to live a life of inconvenience, <coughs> excuse me, of inconvenience. And because that kind of life, an inconvenient life under the lordship of Jesus is so different from what the world tells us to do, we are bound to encounter opposition along the way. And often that opposition will come in the form of ridicule, false accusations. And in some places today, it still comes in the form of physical threats of violence and imprisonment. The father-in-law of a friend of mine is a pastor in another country. His name is Arjun Stephen. And as far as I know, he's lived in this country his entire life. And there's a lot of hostility towards followers of Jesus in this country. And Arjun didn't grow up as a Christian. But somewhere along the way, he met Jesus and he realized that knowing Jesus personally was worth the conflict, it was worth the potential danger, worth the opposition of living different than the culture in which he was raised. And as he grew in his faith and in his discipleship, he and his wife ended up starting a church with their kids right next to a temple where false gods are still worshiped today. And as Arjun preached the gospel of Jesus, the guy who ran the temple right next door would often show up knife in hand, making threats of physical violence against Arjun, his wife, and their children. But they remained faithful and they continued to pray that God would protect them and that he would lead them and that they would be obedient to what he was calling them to do. And in time, those threats started to wane. But about the time those threats started to wane, Arjun ended up getting arrested time and time again, spending multiple nights in jail all for preaching 
the gospel of Jesus. You see, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's vital that we understand that trouble and opposition will come. But how we respond when it hits says a lot about the place in our life that Jesus occupies. Look at how Paul responds in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. In contrast to Tertullus' opening remarks, Paul's are succinct, they're honest, and they're respectful. And it would make sense, right, for Paul to attempt to either garner sympathy or fight fire with fire. But instead, by speaking honestly and respectfully about and to Felix, he models his faith and his confidence in God and God's ability to work out this situation. And then he starts to dismantle these false charges. Continuing in verse 11, he says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul had a very clear understanding of the Roman judicial process. It didn't require evidence quite like our courts do today, but it did require that defendants and plaintiffs face each other in court, present their side of the story to a judge, and then eyewitnesses could confirm one side or the other. And that day in Caesarea, Paul calmly and clearly sets the facts before Felix by setting a timeline and respectfully pointing out that the people who are here can't prove that any of this actually happened. But more importantly than that, Paul leans in and shows that he has common ground with his Jewish brothers. He does this to prove that he's not a heretic, but in fact, that he worships the same God as them. And like them, he's anticipating a day when God will make the resurrection a reality. You see, Paul knew the Jewish scriptures extremely well. He knew that they pointed to the arrival of a promised Messiah from God. <clears throat> and his story was that he had discovered that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he had dealt with sin once and for all on the cross and that he defeated the curse of death when he rose again. From Paul's perspective, he was not trying to move away from being Jewish. He was trying to help his fellow Jews understand that Jesus is the Messiah that God had always promised. But there was one big problem. The idea of Jesus being God's promised Messiah was inconvenient for the Jews of Paul's day because accepting him as Messiah challenged their beliefs to the very core. And it would require them to make a lot of changes aren't really convenient. And you see, Paul understood the inconvenience of following Jesus. His life was turned entirely upside down when he met the resurrected Jesus face to face. He went from being a respected Jewish religious leader to a traveling church planter who was ridiculed, beaten, stoned, and wrongfully arrested. But for Paul, all of that was worth it when he came to realize that knowing Jesus as his savior also meant surrendering to him as Lord. And that affected 
every area of Paul's life. Making Jesus our Lord and master doesn't just mean that we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. It means we learn to obey him in every aspect of our lives and follow his example in the way that we live. And that's why in his defense before Felix, Paul wasn't belligerent, he wasn't argumentative, and he wasn't disrespectful. And I think there's something that we can learn from that. William Larkin in his commentary on Acts puts, puts it this way. He says, Paul's solid defense teaches us that though proclaiming a controversial message may spark an uproar, messengers themselves must always be peace-loving, circumspect, and law-abiding. Paul was very clear about his innocence. And he didn't let his accusers just run all over him, but he was also very clear about how following the way of Jesus had affected him. And look at how Felix responds in verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. Now, this phrase, the way, long before the Mandalorians adopted it, was a first century reference, thank you for the clap, was a first century reference to followers of Jesus. It's similar to calling somebody a Christian, but the difference here is that by saying the way, following the way doesn't just tell you something they believe, it tells you how they lived their life following the example of Jesus. And Luke points this out for a reason, because there are likely two reasons that Felix would have known what the way was and known about it. One, he, as the governor of the area, it was his job to keep the peace and send resources back to Rome. And this movement that they were calling the way was a potentially dangerous movement, especially in the region of Judea. And so he needed to know about it in order to keep the peace. And ultimately, the whole area was a religious powder keg. And so it was vital that he understood what it meant to be a follower of the way. The other reason was because of the woman that Felix married, is a woman named Drusilla, who was Jewish. And Drusilla comes from the line of Jewish rulers, all with the name of Herod. So, you know, the Herods who murdered James, the disciple of Jesus, the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, and even the Herod who killed infant and toddler boys in Bethlehem. Needless to say, Felix and Drusilla knew about the way, but they probably didn't view followers of Jesus in the best light. And continuing in verse 24, it seems like Paul gets Felix's attention because Luke writes, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Paul's message insisted on right relations with God and his people, a life of moral discipline and the coming judgment. And as Felix sat there and listened, he felt things getting a little too close for comfort. So he shut Paul down. Can you imagine a more uncomfortable message for violent and corrupt Felix to sit through than that? Because with, and with this verse, Luke brings to the surface the actual plot conflict of this story. Because up until now, this seems like it's another story about something that Paul endured for the sake of Jesus. And that is a point of this story. 
But Felix, the most powerful man in the entire region, was so afraid when he heard Paul speak because he was confronted by the truth of Scripture. You see, the conflict here wasn't between Paul and the Jews. It wasn't even between Paul and Felix. The conflict of this story was between Felix and Jesus. And even though Felix was well acquainted with the way of following Jesus, he didn't know Jesus personally. And the thought of rearranging his life around Jesus seemed far too inconvenient. And I think it's safe that we assume that Paul's message, just like his opening remarks, wasn't some turn or burn style message. I think it's safe that we assume that his, he was calm, he was courageous, he was respectful, and that he was honest. But as he spoke about faith in Jesus, Felix, the judge, ended up the one on trial. And the longer Paul spoke, the more uncomfortable Felix became. And at that moment, Felix chose personal convenience over a personal relationship with Jesus. And I wonder how many of us make that same choice every day. I don't, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with modern conveniences. I appreciate free two-day shipping just as much as anybody else. But I wonder, and I think a lot of us have a hard time coming to grips with what it means and the level of inconvenience there is for Jesus to be our Lord. Yes, we love the fact that he came to save us from our sins, but we're not real comfortable with what that means for our everyday life. And yes, we love that he has forgiven every sin from our past, but are we comfortable with the changes he wants to make in us moving forward? You see, Jesus didn't come just to save us from our sins. He came to give us new life and a new relationship with him. And this new life means that you become a new creation when you submit to the lordship of Jesus. But what good is being a new creation if you're still holding on to the old ways of life? What's the point of following Jesus if we're still focused on our career aspirations instead of his mission in his world? And what's the big deal about our sins being forgiven if we choose to engage in the same type of entertainment that mocks God and degrades his image bearers? Or why say and sing that Jesus is our king when there are relationships that we prioritize over him every single day? Jesus said it best himself in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. And to serve Jesus as our master, to submit to his lordship, to follow the way of Jesus means that you let go of anything and everything that keeps you from a deeper, more personal, more intimate relationship with Jesus. So what's the point of following the way of Jesus if our lives don't reflect the lordship of Jesus? And I want to be clear, this isn't about trying harder to follow some set of rules. 
This is about giving Jesus complete lordship over your whole being because that's what he deserves. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. He didn't come as a convenience for us. He came to rescue us, to redeem us, and to make us into a new creation. It wasn't convenient by any means for Jesus to live as a human or to die in our place. It was never convenient when he called someone to follow him, and it will never be convenient to do the things that he asks you to do, but it will always be worth it because it will always bring him glory. And Paul knew this better than most. After his encounter with Jesus on his way to Damascus, his life became wildly inconvenient but he began to experience the abundant life that Jesus offers and reoriented his entire life around Jesus. And in contrast, Felix was born as a slave and he became the governor of a very important region in the Roman Empire. He knew what it felt like to be set free. But when he was confronted by Jesus through Paul's message, he judged that freedom, true freedom in Christ, wasn't worth the cost. So this father-in-law of my friend, Arjun, what I didn't tell you is that um, as, these, as he was receiving these threats and he was being imprisoned, one day the son of the guy who ran the temple died unexpectedly. And in this moment, Arjun modeled an extreme level of obedience to Jesus as his Lord as he went and ministered and cared for and served the family of the man who had threatened Arjun, his wife, and his children. Arjun modeled what it looks like to serve Jesus as our Lord, to model the way of Jesus in this hurting and broken world. This family didn't ask him to come do this, but Arjun understood that to be a follower of Jesus means to engage with people who are hurting. It means to pray for your enemy, to pray and care for the one who had been persecuting you. He understood just how inconvenient it was. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor from the mid-1900s. Um, he also understood the inconvenience of following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a very, very early critic of Hitler, and he spoke and preached openly against the Nazi party and their beliefs in the 30s and 40s. And ultimately, ultimately, it led to his arrest in 1943 and his execution in 1945 at the ripe old age of 39. And Bonhoeffer, in what is probably his best-known book, says this. He says, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. 
Salvation and forgiveness from our sins <laughs> won't cost you, well, it's free. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. But to live with Jesus as your Lord, to grow closer to him requires letting go of more and more and giving him more and more lordship of your life. And when we live with Jesus as our Lord, it should change everything. It should change the language we use, the way we speak to people we disagree with, <clears throat> the entertainment we choose, how we spend our money, and even how we manage our schedules. So I don't know if there's something getting stirred up in you. I don't know if the Holy Spirit has shaken something up in you today, but if he has, don't make the same mistake as Felix. Don't dismiss something that the Holy Spirit is bringing to the surface for the sake of convenience and comfort. <laughs> because whatever it is that keeps you from letting Jesus be your one and only Lord is worth any inconvenience and worth any discomfort, worth any pain to give up. So we're gonna sing a song here in just a minute about Jesus as our Lord. I wanna give you time and permission to, to sit with the Spirit now to look for that thing that he's, he's brought to the surface. And if, if there is something that is there, meet us over here for prayer. The book of Acts shows us that there is immense power in prayer. And we wanna walk alongside you in this. But maybe for some of you, the next step in making Jesus your Lord is to follow him in baptism. Because what baptism is, it's an act of obedience and it's a dramatic declaration that I'm not who I was because of the saving grace and the finished act of Jesus. Because of what he's done, I get to be a new creation with him as my Lord. So as we sing, as we worship, Listen to that still, small voice of the Spirit. It won't always be easy, and it will very rarely be convenient to do what he asks, but I promise you, you will never regret it. Father God, I'm constantly astounded by your grace. by your desire to rescue and redeem us. Lord, I pray that as we sing, that your spirit will continue to move in the hearts of your people, that you will shake us up, that you will bring to the surface the things that you want us to let go of, bring to the surface the things that we claim are too inconvenient for you to be Lord over. God, we love you and we trust you. It's in your precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen.